Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Father, now as we prepare to open your word, I ask that your Holy Spirit of truth would fill our hearts and minds, not just to teach us something, but to move us in a place where we can hear from you and draw near to you. Father, be with us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I too want to thank Amanda and the worship team for leading us this morning. If that was a newer song uh, to you, it certainly was to me. I had a chance to uh, join in in the first service. Um, just incredibly moved sometimes by the opportunity we have. And you know what? Even if you can't carry a tune, um, I think music and singing or whatever you do, singing, <laughs> screaming, um, is a gift from God. And it's one of the ways that actually God is pleased with our worship. So even if you don't know a song, join in as you can. And uh, even if you can't hold the note, just let the, this is singing to God, not to one another. And so let's, let's uh, join in fully in that. Uh, you'll notice on the screen, uh, next one, go ahead, uh, that we have a survey, that a short couple of questions survey that we're going to do. So even before I get started, you're going to take your phones out or you can scan the code that's on there. And I think the instructions are very clear. Uh, so get that ready and we're going to jump into that right away. Uh, my opportunity to say good morning and welcome here. It's great to be able to gather together here in this building for a time of worship together. And for those who are joining us online, uh, thank you for inviting us into your home and making us a part of your day. If you don't know me, my name is Cal. I serve on the staff team here, and it's certainly my privilege to walk us through God's word this morning. So if you've got that uh, survey link loaded up here, we're going to jump right into it with a, just a trivia question and a couple of questions that I want to pull you on. So um, here's, a, here's the first question, the, the trivia question that I want to throw at you and allow you to answer through your phones. Although it was invented several decades earlier, during the 1970s, car makers introduced what to the automobile? I think there's five answers available up there, so go ahead and punch in what you think. This is a little trivia for us. And this question is really to try to help us uh, uh, get moving in the same direction with uh, what God has laid on my heart this morning. So go ahead and answer that. You see we have 60 people, 66. Okay, more and more people responding. Good. I'll give it another eight seconds here to you guys so you can put your answers in. All right, well, um, there's no prize, but you certainly get bragging rights with the person beside you if you answer differently from them. The correct answer to this question is, well, I did, there's no letters up there, sorry. The fourth option, car alarms, which is significantly lower than, and with all the seatbelts was the, uh, the most popular answer there. Believe it or not, forms of, uh, you know, the car alarm was first introduced more en masse to vehicles in the early 1970s. Now, car alarms, some form of a car alarm was invented actually back in 1913. Some would even suggest before the 1900s. And um, uh, uh, there was an aftermarket car alarm produced in 1954 that didn't really catch on. But um, car makers began to include alarms in vehicles in the 19, early 1970s. Did anyone want to guess which is the first company that actually included a car alarm in a vehicle? Pastor Will already knows, so don't, I saw you used yet, so don't say anything here. Um, any guesses? No? Okay, it was actually Chrysler that introduces the first uh, manufactured car alarm. And then 
Shortly after, uh, General Motors, so whoever yelled out General Motors would be kind of correct, offered uh, car alarms on their Corvettes after 1972, so we can kind of understand why, right, at the time. Um, now, I remember when I was younger, and by what I mean when I was younger is in the 70s and 80s, so I'd be in my early teen years, that whenever we heard a car alarm go off, we would generally stop what we were doing, we'd get up and we'd try to find the source of the alarm. I don't know if it was just that, you know, kind of curiosity or if it was a real desire, oh, there's a crime being committed, we've got to go check this out and see what's happening. Uh, there was, a, there was a, an interest in, in, in going to see what was going on when we heard a car alarm go off. We'd rush off to see where it was. Maybe we'd catch someone trying to break into or steal a vehicle, and that was very exciting. Or simply at that time, car alarms were mostly found on more like sports cars and, and uh, more expensive cars. We just even wanted to see what kind of car uh, happened to be sounding off. Here's the first survey question that I want to ask. How do you typically respond when you hear a car alarm go off? Here are the options. Do you rush over to see if someone is committing a crime, trying to break in or steal a car? Do you look up and keep your eyes and ears peeled in case you might see somebody running away from the scene that you can report to the police later? Or do you barely look up and kind of almost ignore it? Take a look and see what the answer is. Oh, okay, the answer is a little, little bit different from um, the first service. You guys are a much more conscientious group, I think. Uh, at least there's more in the, in the B category. Um, in the first service, and even indicated by our, sur our survey here, most people nowadays tend to ignore car alarms. I actually wanted to see if someone would set off their car alarm in the parking lot right about now to see how people might respond. Unless you recognize it as your car, most people would just kind of, oh, okay. I'm not sure why. Well, I have a few theories as to why, but I wonder if it's because car alarms have become so commonplace and there are all kinds of makes and models of vehicles, right? It's not only the fancy cars or the sports cars that have them. A car alarm seems to just go off at every little thing. We run into them maybe even almost every day. You could simply walk too close to a car and the alarm will go off, right? And so we kind of just tend to ignore them. Are you a kind of person or the type of person that typically ignores warning signs? See, all over the place we have warnings and warning systems in all areas of life. I mentioned we have car alarms, but our cars also have warning lights on the dash. Okay, confession time. How many of you have a check engine light on in your vehicle right now? Ah, yes, some with some enthusiasm. How many of you have had that car uh, warning, uh, check engine light on for more than a month? More than three months? More than six months? More than a year? Oh, some had to, okay, confession time for me. I have a vehicle that has had its uh, check engine light on probably more than two years. Now, it's not the car I drive. So, <laughs> um, so, so uh, I don't know if Michaela's watching online, she's not here, but um, Michaela, my youngest daughter, that's the car she drives, so maybe I need to apologize to her right away. Um, but anyway, like, we, we see these lights come on and, and, and we, we tend to ignore them oftentimes, right? Um, you know, our phones, our computers, they regularly give us warnings about possible viruses or slowdowns in, in the processor or the battery life is beginning to drain. Um, our homes have security systems with motion sensors, and even around here, we have a, a bit of a security system. I remember years ago, the Xbox, an older Xbox, had a, what they called the red ring of death, which means if you push the, 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 um, 
the power button, if a red ring appeared around it, it was a sign, a warning sign that the system was eventually going to crash and fail. My brother-in-law actually, my former brother-in-law, I should say, um, had uh, that happen on his Xbox and he ignored the warning and eventually his Xbox crashed. He had to buy a whole new system. Even our bodies give us warning signs, don't they? When something is not quite right or something is about to fail. We might have high blood pressure or high blood sugar. We have unexplained aches and pains. Sometimes we have headaches or light sensitivity or we can't sleep. Sometimes just simple sore joints or sore muscles can, can be warning signs that something's not right with our body, but too often we just ignore it. About 15 or 20 years ago, I was going through a regular medical exam for a life insurance policy. And strangely enough, the doctors and the nurse at the time called me and said, we have to redo a part of the test. So they redid it and the same thing. They said, there's something that's not quite right here. Without getting into all the medical details, they found out that I had had elevated um, levels of a protein discharge. And that was a warning sign. It was something wasn't right in my physical body. After several other tests, including a kidney biopsy, I found out that I had a kidney condition that if it had been left unchecked, could eventually lead for, to, to dialysis or kidney failure, which then would require a kidney transplant. Now, fortunately, because I was given that warning sign just through a simple medical test, and because I acted on it, I have been able to, through medication and some lifestyle changes, minimize the effects of that condition. And right now, it doesn't really affect me at all. But imagine if I had ignored that warning sign. Last question for our survey. Are you currently ignoring some type of warning sign in your life, be it with your car or your computer or your physical body or anything else? Go ahead and answer. Yes, not sure, no. Are you currently ignoring some type of warning sign in your life? Yeah, these answers are similar to the first service. It's pretty, pretty large percentage of us are ignoring some type of warning sign. See, the question I want to begin with this morning is, I wonder if we, or the statement is that, I wonder if we in general simply need to learn to take more seriously the warning signs that we're all given in our lives. Now, last week, Pastor Layton introduced our new sermon series in the book of Joel that we've titled, Return of the King. Now, if you didn't get a chance to hear Pastor Layton's message from last week, I would encourage you to go online to our YouTube channel uh, and, and take the time to listen to it or, or to watch it. But here's the thing. I, I, I would encourage you not to watch it with a focus on what you might learn from that series. Rather, I want you to listen to the heart of the message. Pastor Layton began his message last week by recounting stories of revival, times when the Spirit of God moved powerfully among the church and among other, uh, all people, drawing those, uh, those in the church, renewing their, their excitement and their vigor for, for their faith, and drawing others who had yet, not yet known him to a place where they understood their need for Jesus and made a commitment to following him. He recounted examples that were found in Scripture, and certainly some in some very recent history, including right here in Saskatoon through the ministry of Ebenezer back in 1971. Now, the purpose of recounting those stories was not to try to reproduce in some formulaic way God's work from the past, but it, it's a powerful, powerful reminder. And this is a statement that Pastor Layton used that, that got him choked up and this morning made me emotional as well. It was a reminder that what God has done in the past, he can certainly do again today. 
What God has done in the past, he can certainly do again today. Now, of course, it will look different. The Holy Spirit wants to do a different work, not repeat what was done in the past. And in our times, we certainly need that work to appear different. But not only can God work, God actually wants to work. And he wants to bring renewal and revival amongst his church and amongst all people. The pastor Layton's heart came through last week as he shared, and, and my heart and my passion, and his heart and, and his passion, excuse me, captured my heart. Over this past week, as I prepared for this uh, week to, to speak, I asked myself if I longed for the Spirit of God to be at work, first in me personally, then in us here as a local church family, and then even beyond. Now, as was said last week, if God is going to renew his people and bring revival to this land, it can only be through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not a man-made or man-created thing. It's not through the eloquence of our words or our homiletic skill as we preach, but it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It's as each of us, individually and together, as we open our hearts and minds to the work of the Spirit of God. And so our simple prayer for this series has simply been that we, each of us would, would desire that God would work in us and that God would work through us to bring revival and renewal to our world. Now our passage this morning is Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. But just for a brief moment, let me go back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, Joel references a past event in the history of Judah, the, this invasion of locusts, which has devastated the land. And after the devastation has been seen, and after the people are, are, are struggling with, with what has happened, God, through Joel, calls the people to hear, to awaken, to lament or to mourn, and to cry out to God. The physical destruction uh, wreaked upon the land by the locusts is really just a, a parallel to the spiritual condition of the people. And God's call to them is to return to God, to return to the king. In, in chapter 1, verse 15, Joel says this, he says, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And here Joel makes the first of several references in this book to this expression, day of the Lord. In our passage today, we read in chapter 2, verse 1, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. So before we move ahead, I think we need to ask ourselves and answer this question, what is the day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord? Now again, chapter 1, um, that this day of the Lord is in reference to the locusts, this plague of locusts, and paints this picture of this complete devastation of the land and the corresponding response that Joel uh, exhorts the people to, to, to join in on. But now we move into chapter 2. And chapter 2 describes the day of the Lord as the invasion of an enemy army that is to come. It's something in the future. So chapter 1 references the day of the Lord as a past event. And now chapter 2, Joel is referencing the day of the Lord as something that is imminent, that something is, is coming. It's, it seems as though it's inevitable. Let me read for you some of the verses in chapter 2 between uh, verses 2 to 11 that describe this not-so-distant future day of the Lord. Verse 2 says, regarding the day of the Lord, it's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. In verse 6, it says, At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. In verses 10 to 11, say, Before them the earth shake, 
The heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunder sat at the head of his army, his forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? See, it, it's, it's not a pretty picture, is it? So what is the day of the Lord? I think scripturally, there are two answers to that question. First, the day of the Lord refers to the time and the events that will occur at the end of time, the end of, of human history, when Christ returns in glory to establish his forever rule over all creation. At that time, when, at that time all things will be set right and God will judge all people. Those in Christ, those who have made a decision to follow Jesus, will be forever with him. And those apart from Christ will forever be apart from him. And this is the day of the Lord most commonly referred to in, in most of the New Testament references. For example, in Romans 2, verses 5 to 6, it says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. That's another reference to the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. So the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, is at the end times, when Christ returns to sit on his throne to reign and rule forever, and God comes to judge. But secondly, the day of the Lord also references times in history when God intervenes in the course of human history to bring judgment to those who reject him and his rule, but salvation and blessing to those who fear and obey him. The plagues upon Egypt could be seen as one of those times, a day of the Lord against the nation of Egypt. Um, Joel, of course, references the plague of locusts, and then now he's talking about another impending army uh, that's going to evade them, another day of the Lord that's to come. Several times in Israel's history, God used opposing armies from other nations to bring about his judgment, his day of the Lord upon the people. So, for example, in Ezekiel 30, we read, Wail and say, alas for that day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come against Egypt, and anguish will come upon Cush. But while the day of the Lord will bring judgment, it will also bring salvation and blessing. Look what Ze uh, Zechariah chapter 9 says. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. And these Day of the Lord references, especially in the Old Testament, not only reveals a soon-to-come event, but alludes, well, actually it does more than it actually foreshadows the ultimate Day of the Lord when Christ returns. The Day of the Lord are the times both in history and at the end of time when God comes to pass judgment on those who reject and disobey him and salvation and blessing to those who fear and follow him. So with that understanding of the day of the Lord, the first point I think we need to see is found in chapter 2, verse 1. And here Joel writes, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. You see, each time the day of the Lord is close at hand, including the ultimate day at the, of, the, of the Lord at the end times, God provides a spokesperson to sound the warning, and he gives his people a chance to respond. 
He never springs it upon us unexpectedly. There's always a spokesperson and there's always a chance to respond. Moses declared the coming plagues to Pharaoh. You remember Jonah pronounced God's coming judgment to the city of Nineveh. Other prophets declared the coming judgment to Israel just as Joel is doing here. And Jesus himself came and declared that one day he would return as king and that God would judge. You see, the way I look at it, the book of Joel is really a warning sign. It's that light on the dash of our car that warns us something is wrong, that something is coming. And when that warning goes off, just as Joel is giving the warning to, to the nation of Judah then and to us now, when that warning goes off, we can ignore it or we can choose to act. Someone sounds the warning. The people need to respond. Pastor Layton mentioned last week that he guided the staff through Ezekiel 33 and 34 just a few weeks ago as part of our staff day. In Ezekiel 33, the call is given to Ezekiel by God to sound the alarm or the warning of his coming judgment. Now, the illustration that Ezekiel uses is the image of the watchman. And in those days, the watchmen were to stand guard on behalf of the people. They were to look out over the horizon to see if danger was coming. And if danger came, they were to sound the alarm to make sure everybody knew that, that you know, whether it's an invading army or whatever it would be was, was on its way. Here's the thing with the watchman. If he, do, if he sees danger coming and he doesn't sound the alarm and the people as a result are hurt or worse killed, the responsibility falls to the watchman. He's the one who's held accountable because he didn't sound the alarm. However, if the watchman saw danger coming and he sounded the alarm, but the people don't respond, they just continued about their business like nothing's wrong, kind of like what we do when a car alarm goes off and we just kind of ignore it, then the responsibility now falls onto them, the people. The watchman has done his duty by sounding the alarm, but the second half of that equation is the people need to respond. Otherwise, the people now become responsible for what happens. Now, I don't know how you feel, but I believe we are in unprecedented times. Every day it seems like there's, another, there's news of another attack on the church or on the Christian faith. The staff gets this magazine quite regularly, and I'll be honest, some, I don't always you know, read through it entirely. This Faith Today magazine, I don't know if some of you get this. But this one caught my eye, especially in light of what we're looking at here. And the cover story is titled, Redeeming Evangelical. You see, we consider ourselves an evangelical church, and that really just means that we, we carry the good news. That's kind of, you break down evangel, you know, evangelistic, those kinds of things. We're an evangelical church, which means we carry the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's subtitled, Canadians have strong views about what they think evangelical means. And on the cover, you can't see it here, but I'll read it for you. There's a list of words that are now associated with the evangelical church, with us. Words like bigoted, narrow-minded, white, homophobic, misogynistic, toxic, racist. That's the world's perception of the evangelical church. Add to that the idea that, or that the issues that have long divided church and society are, are growing wider and, and deeper. The chasm is, is even greater than it's ever been before. 
scandal and controversy within the church as leaders fall and fail. Moral failings are in the news, seem to be in the news regularly. And in times like this, I think our natural tendency is to defend ourselves against those who are attacking us or, or in turn to attack those who are attacking us. We, we, we justify, oh, they're just this or that, or we don't know. We, we have this tendency to try to protect ourselves. Turn the tables. Go on the offensive against society or politicians or, or whatever it may be. But did you know that it seems, and again, I don't have scientific understanding of this, but anecdotally it seems that most often in Scripture, when bad things are happening to God's people, God's desire for them was not to defend themselves and to attack those who are attacking them. Rather, the call to the church has always been to examine themselves, to see if what was happening to them was actually being allowed or even caused by God because of some sin or some condition of the church or God's people that God wasn't pleased with. Some of you may remember the opening words of the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, verse 5 to 7, when God says to the people through Haggai, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Some translation says, consider your ways. And he goes on to list some of the things that are happening to them as God's people. It says, you have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to see them in a purse with holes in it. You see, in a time when everything was going wrong against God's people, in a time when they couldn't seem to get ahead, they were they're struggling and all this, the natural tendency, and I think our natural tendency, but to look at, well, it's a problem of this, it's a problem of that, it's their problem, it's all this. And God says, hold on, no, 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 give careful thought to your ways. Because the problem isn't out there. Many times the problem is in here. And God is calling the church, us, those here today, those of you who are watching online, who've made that decision to follow Jesus, to also give careful thought to our ways. Now, I don't know if we're in a day of the Lord. I don't know if there's an imminent day of the Lord coming. I don't know if Pastor Layton or Pastor West or myself or any of the other pastoral staff and leaders are the spokespeople of today. I don't know that. But I believe this. I believe, if nothing else, we are in a season of warning. That the things that are going on in us and around us is God's way of warning us. The warning light is on. And we need to decide if we are going to act on it. God longs to do his work of renewal and, his, and revival in this world through us, his church, but his work needs to begin in us, his church. Now, if you came to be a Christ follower, and if you long for renewal and revival, not only in your own lives, but in the lives of those around you and in the world around you, then we need to begin with our own hearts, individually and together, and then and only then may we, might we see the Spirit of God move among those who have yet to know him. So Joel's call to the people is found in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And I want us to see that this, this passage forms kind of the hinge point of not only this, this book, but I think we're kind of in that hinge point for us right now. 
In the book, we see that Joel has so far focused primarily on the judgment side regarding the day of the Lord, right? The destruction of the locust, this impending or inevitable army that's going to come and overrun the people. The side that should be feared by those who are not yet right with God, who don't walk according to his ways. But there's this hinge passage in here, and Joel moves from this judgment and destruction side of things, and as we move ahead in the coming weeks, we're going to see the salvation and blessing side on the day of the Lord as well. Because the day of the Lord is not just about God's judgment, it's about God's salvation, God's blessing. A day that those who follow him can hope for and long for. But we're on the, on the hinge moment of this. And as God is giving us a warning sign, how, which side we end up on will, will depend on how we respond to the warning. How we respond to the, the, the words in verses 12 to 17. So God through Joel gives his people a call to four things. Now, I originally looked at this and, and saw three things, but as I continue to, to study, I see a fourth that I think we need to share. And I had originally called my, my title, The Four R's of Renewal and Revival. Uh, you know, if you need to edit that, it's the, 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 I originally called it the three R's, and now it's the four R's of Renewal and Revival. So first, in chapter 2, verse 12, Joel writes this. He says, even now, in some translations say, yet even now. So despite seeing all the destruction and the, all the things that are going on negatively, and our tendency then is to either blame others or to, to maybe become despondent and, and despair. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. The first thing we need to do is simply we need to return to God. We need to return to him. We need to stop moving in our own direction and living our lives for ourselves and enjoying the pleasures that we want to, to, to participate in and all the things we want to do, our own priorities and goals and, and, and all of that. We need to stop walking in that direction and turn around and start walking back to God. We need to turn away from sin and selfishness. Move again on the path of righteousness and holiness and obedience. And Joel kind of goes a little bit deeper with that. He says our return needs, to him needs to be with all of our heart. And we need to give complete surrender to, of, of ourselves to him. And our return to him cannot just be in word or in intention, but it needs to be accompanied by action and even emotion. He talks about return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. And fasting, and when we fast, we, we put aside food that might distract us or might hinder us, or, uh, hinder our focus from God. And we talked about weeping and mourning. Our hearts need to be broken, both by the sinfulness in our own lives and the sinfulness of us as a people and the divides that we may have, but, but also about the sinfulness of the world around us. And our heart needs to break when we see a people without God, not just be critical of choices they may make or, or things that we don't agree with. But our hearts need to be broken. We need to show it with weeping and mourning. And that's the kind of return Joel calls us to. It's, it's deep in both heart, mind, and in action. First thing we need to do is we need to return. And the second, in the first part of verse 13, Joel says, rend your heart and not your garments. So we need to rend our hearts. In Old Testament times in particular, the rendering or the tearing of clothes um, was an expression of mourning. It was a way to say um, that, you know, I'm so overcome with grief that I don't care if my clothes are ruined. I don't care if I look bad. I don't know if you would do that today. You might check the label to see what kind of shirt you're wearing before you, you know, tear it apart. 
but there was the expression of the heart. And, and, and what Joel is saying here is, but don't just tear your clothes. You see, the thing about that type of mourning, you could easily rend your clothes without any true repentance and mourning on the inside. It's kind of like when, when Jesus talks about when you pray, don't stand on the street corner and pray so everyone can hear you. Uh, when you fast, don't, don't tell everybody, I'm, look, I'm fasting, look how spiritual I am. It's the same thing. It's like when, you, when, you're, when you're hurting, when you're mourning, you don't have to only tear your heart. Jesus, uh, God is more interested in our heart condition than what we do on the outside. And so Joel calls us and calls his people to rend their hearts. He's asking, are your hearts broken? Because the only repentance and mourning that pleases God begins in the heart. Now, I think we should take a few moments here and just pause for a minute. And I wonder if we shouldn't create space to allow God to speak to us. I'm going to ask you to do is just close your eyes and, and bow your head, just to, to shut out the distractions of around you and, and the noises that may be around you. And I just have a... I want to encourage you just to say a simple prayer. God, speak to me. Are there things in my life which I need to put aside so I can return to you and rend, be broken in my heart? I'm going to give you a minute or so to do that. And I just want to read a couple of scripture passages from the psalm that might guide some of these thoughts. Take a moment just to ask God to speak to you. That's, that's the only prayer. Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Father, as we've taken just a few moments just to reflect upon the condition of our hearts, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us anything, any sin, any attitude, any action, any perspective that would not be pleasing to you, that would hinder us from allowing your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us for your purposes. And Father, as your Spirit identifies those things, may your Spirit also give us strength and courage to confess and to repent of those things, to come before you. And we trust that as we do so, that same Holy Spirit, through the Spirit's power, would transform us and change us so we can be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to return. We need to rend our hearts. And third, Joel says in the second part of verse 13 and 14, 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offering for the Lord your God. The third thing Joel calls the people to do is to rely, to rely and trust the nature and character of God. You see, God doesn't actually want to pour judgment and wrath on his creation. He doesn't want to. But because of his holiness and justice, sometimes he has to do that. He doesn't want to. For 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, this Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He longs for us, his people, he longs for others to repent and to come to him so he can do his good work in us and through us and put us in that place where we can be the recipients of his amazing blessing. Notice, though, even in Joel's message that there isn't necessarily a promise that God will relent. He's not saying, do these things and God will relent. He says, who knows? Who knows? God might, he may turn and relent. But even if he doesn't, he longs for us to come back to him, to return to him. And we, by faith, need to rely on and trust his very nature and character. You see, if we only repent and relent and rend our hearts simply to get something out of God, we've put ourselves in God's place. We've made him our puppet. Saying, okay, I did these things, now God, you're supposed to do your things. No, he calls us to come before him. And then who knows? but we need to trust in his character and his nature. So we need to rely on his character and nature. And fourth and finally, Joel says in verses 15 to 17, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep at the portico and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The fourth thing we need to do is we need to rally together. We need to rally together. While renewal and revival begins in the hearts of individuals, it takes off and it becomes a movement when we rally together as the people of God. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just bring out a couple of key points. First, notice the diverse composition of this gathering. I love that it says young and old, even right down to infants who are, who are, who are still nursing, all the way up to the elderly. It includes the, the leaders, so-called leaders of the church, but then also the, 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 the congregation members, I guess, if I were to use the parallel of today. Everyone is called to gather together, to fast, and to gather together as a sacred assembly. So just because you may be a bit younger or maybe you're a bit newer here doesn't mean that, that you, don't, you don't need to be a part of what we're doing here. We'll, you know, we'll talk to, the, to, to our youth about that. Right? We're all part of this family and we're called together to gather in this sacred assembly. Second, God does call the leaders to set the example. To set the example of true heartfelt repentance and then to lead the, up the people to do the same. And this is something that we under, under Pastor Lane's leadership are taking very seriously that we are being called to consider our hearts and where we're at and, and to set an example 
And hopefully we can, we can be an example that, that, that you, you'd be willing to follow. Third, and I love this, but it breaks my heart as well. The people of God, the church, become a force in the world when the presence and the spirit of God is with them. Do not make your inheritance, God's people, do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among them. That, that byword is simply like a, put it aside, right? It's like, oh, it's not, not that big a deal. And then ask the question, well, where is their God? Why would I even want to be a part of that? Where, where is their God? The church becomes a force in the world. That God's people become the force in the world when the, when the presence and the spirit of God is with them. I wonder if we have articles like this. I wonder if the church today is made fun of at best, judged at worst maybe. I wonder if the church today is such an easy target for, for mocking and ridicule. It's simply because the spirit of God isn't with us. You see, we've made church into this weekly routine and we gather for our own purposes and our own desires and, and we go home and we wonder, well, was Cal's message very good today? Well, Leighton kind of made this, uh, blah, blah, blah. the worship, I didn't understand the worship songs, I didn't know them. Oh, Amanda led another new song, I don't like that. And we've kind of come together and we've made this gathering, this expression of church about us when the gathering of the church is about to be about his spirit and his presence with us. And when we gather, there should be such a display of his presence that the world cannot help but see who we are as his people. Not a judgmental, bigoted, critical, whatever word you want to use, people, but a place of love and grace and mercy. And people will look at his people and say, they matter. They're important. And they'll look at you and say, you're important in my life because you love without condition and you extend grace and mercy without, without condition. See, when we, when we gather and we're so focused on ourselves and what we get out of it, the Spirit of God really has no room to do His work. And if the Spirit of God doesn't work, then there's no room for renewal and revival. Now again, we recognize that this isn't a man-made or man-created thing. We can't put it into a formula. It needs each and every one of us to just humbly kneel before God and ask him to expose our hearts. But what we have done is we've set aside our next night of worship on October 16th. I believe that's at 6 or 6.30. I can't remember the exact time, but it'll be, it'll be, you'll know. As an opportunity to put this into practice. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking you to put this as an event in your I know already full calendar. But we're praying that this could be maybe a beginning of an expression of this sacred assembly that Joel calls us to. Where we return to him and we rend or even expose our hearts. We lean upon and rely upon his nature and character and we rally together, trusting that if we do so and as we do so, God will speak to us and his Holy Spirit will be poured out among us and that he can begin an amazing work through us. Revival is the work of the Holy Spirit. But we can put ourselves in a place, spiritually and physically, where God can do his work. Now, in preparation 
for that. We have two weeks before that. Maybe I can suggest and even challenge you to take time in two weeks to fast and to pray. And again, Pastor Layton has challenged us as staff to lead by example in this. Last week he said that the church, his people can only be renewed if its leaders are renewed. And I want to add a second part to that statement. Well, the nation can only be renewed if God's church is renewed. Now, fasting isn't a regular rhythm in your life. I've thrown up some ideas and tips to help you get started. And I won't go through them. It's, it's up there for you. But I just want to focus kind of on one key point. You see, fasting is really the abstaining uh, for a period of time uh, from food so that we can focus on God. And too often when we think about fasting, and I, I remember doing the World Vision 30-hour fasts and things like that and, and stuff, but too often when we're fasting, it gets to a point where all we can think about is our grumbling tummies. Maybe some of you are thinking there, you're checking your watch going, Cal, hurry up, get this thing moving, right? But, you know, we think about our, our stomachs and our, our lack of food. But fasting is really meant to take our, our tension off what we lack and direct it toward what we long for which is we're inviting the presence of God to be with us. So in those times where maybe you're, you're fighting it a little bit, just continue, turn your focus. Say, it's not about what I'm not having in terms of a, a meal. It's about what I'm longing to, to, to receive, which is the presence of God. Otherwise, there's some tips up there. And we'll challenge you, like I said, in the coming, maybe you want to start with one meal this week that you'll intentionally fast from and spend time in prayer and meditation in God's word. Maybe some of you do this regularly, and so you can go to twice a week or, or once a day, well, you know, however it looks for you. But all I'm saying is, let, let's, let's put this into practice, individually and as a people, and then let's see what happens. Let's see what God might do. Are the times that we're living in today a warning sign? For us, his church to heed? I, th I think so. But more importantly, even if the warning sign is on, how are we going to respond is the question. Now, interestingly enough, because of the repentance of the people to the events that Joel describes in chapter 2, the things that were coming never did come. That because the posture and the heart of the people was to repent before God, God did relent. And he never did send this particular day of the Lord. The nation heeded the warning. And so I ask you, are we going to ignore the warning? Are we ready to return, to rend our hearts, to rely on his character, and to rally for renewal and revival? Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.